each and every Halloween or Reformation Day gives us an opportunity as followers of Jesus Christ to rediscover, in a sense, what it means to be his disciple, to follow, follow a holy God and to fulfill his calling in the world. And so today I want to invite you to go back in history with me, if you would, back to the origin of this holiday that we call Halloween or sometimes Reformation Day, and then further back still to a time when Jesus spoke to the church of long ago in words that continue to have vital relevance to the church of here and now. It was believed by the ancient Celtic peoples of northern Europe that evil spirits came out of hiding this time of year. Frightened for a time by the presence of all of that heat and light in those summer and autumn months, they had been in hiding, but now with the approach of winter, the cold and the darkness coming on, the evil spirits at long last would come out and begin to do their dirty work. The ancient Celts developed a whole festival around this change of the seasons. They called it Samhain. It began on October the 31st and continued on until about the 2nd of November and had within it certain rituals designed to ward off these evil influences. For one thing, they dressed up in costumes in order to disguise themselves so that they wouldn't appear to be human and therefore the evil spirits would not recognize them, inflict their deeds upon them, but pass them by. They built great bonfires that were designed to push back the darkness and the cold of the winter months. And they also gave out treats to one another in their homes as if to appease the evil spirits that might be circulating in their midst and keep them from unleashing their wicked tricks upon humanity. When the great missionary movement of the church reached out and began to embrace the Celtic communities in the 6th and 7th century A.D., thousands of these Celtic spiritualists became Christians, and the church found itself faced with a difficult problem. Would the church embrace the Samhain tradition or reject it? And the church decided to consecrate it instead, to bring it together with a larger picture of the Christian vision of life, much as the church had done with the winter festival that got linked with the celebration of the birth of Christ or the spring festivals of fertility that got connected with the celebration of the resurrection of the one who brings new life. And so, because Samhain at least nominally involved the resistance of evil, a concept somewhat sympathetic to the heart of Christians everywhere, the church allowed Samhain to become linked with the celebration of All Hallows Day at the start of November. 
All Hallows being the day on which we celebrated the hallowed ones, the holy ones, those faithful believers that had served Christ on this earth and now gone at last their eternal reward. Over the years, that day became variously named All Souls Day, All Saints Day, All Hallows Day, but in time, October the 31st just became known as All Hallows Evening, the contraction of which we know as Halloween. Centuries later, on October the 31st, 1517, a young priest by the name of Martin Luther went to the door of the Church of All Saints in Wittenberg, Germany, and symbolically nailed there a document in which he raised a profound concern. Many of them, 95 of them, in fact. But one was the concern that the church, in its desire to embrace the traditions of others, had, in fact, lost its identity. In sanctioning the celebration of All Hallows' Eve, for example, the church had hoped that the pagan world would eventually be drawn from its preoccupation with evil to a greater fascination with the good, the holy. But what was happening was the very inverse of that phenomenon. And Luther feared that the church itself was losing its distinctiveness. It was losing its focus on the character of good itself, of holiness, and becoming more and more perversely fascinated with the character of evil. It was not the first time the church fell into that way of thinking, and possibly not the last. When Jesus spoke to the church at Thyatira at the end of the first century A.D., it was a similar problem he sought to address. The stakes at that moment were so very high because the work of God in developing the church was at such a crucial place. Would it survive the the persecution and error that was rampant in that time? And God felt such a profound concern for the church at Thyatira precisely because up to this point in its history it had been such a fruitful church. I know your deeds, Jesus says to the Christians there. I see your love and faith, your service and perseverance. The one whose eyes are like blazing fire, the book of Revelation says. The one who is able to see behind every mask and beneath every costume that a person ever wears had seen to the center of who the church at Thyatira really was. And he commended it. For he found there the marks of the kind of church in which Christ always delights. A love that seeks the lost. A faith that pursues the truth. A hope that stands up under pressure. 
and persecution. And these are the marks to this day of a great church because they are first and foremost the marks of the character of the great God that forms the church. Love and faith and hope. And Jesus reveled in the reality that these attributes were not simply present in the church at Thyatira, but they were growing there more abundantly, more authentically, day by day. And he says, I know that you are now doing even more than you did at first. May that be so always of us. But you know, it's hard for a Christian or a church to stay vital that way. I see it in my own life. Without a lot of care and constant connection to the Lord, I find that I sometimes begin to petrify in the places that I imagine most concern God. And that can happen to all of us. Our, our love, our first love can begin to, to chill and, and then to, to turn inward upon ourselves and our familiar circle. The faith that we once had in the desire to pursue the truth can, can be overtaken by a laziness that simply rests on what we always have already learned or becomes merely interested in that part of the truth that confirms our opinions. And in time, our hope in Christ and His promises can quietly get replaced by a smug confidence in our own selves and a misplaced trust in the world's securities. This happens to churches. But somehow it had not happened at Thyatira yet. And they had stayed close enough to Christ that their creeds and their rituals remained genuine convictions and active commitments and not merely the superficial costume that religion can sometimes become. And yet all of that health was now being jeopardized. Christ says, I have this against you, for you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. Now we can assume that this Jezebel was an actual person, someone who was involved in the life of the church at Thyatira. But we can also assume that the pseudonym that she has given here is simply intended to tell us that she's a type and not merely a temp. In, in other words, like the figures of Balaam and uh, Balak and Sodom and Babylon that we encounter elsewhere in the book of Revelation, Jezebel is representative of a timeless archetype of the temptation that faces the church in every age and not merely a temporary or fixed problem in a particular church. Now, do you know anything about the original Jezebel? Do you remember her story in the Old Testament? I'm not talking about Betty Davis now. 
Jezebel was the spouse of a weak-kneed, lily-livered king named Ahab who ruled the northern kingdom of Israel back in the 800s B.C. Jezebel's very name, ironically, means or comes from a word that means pure or chaste, the very essence of holiness. But sort of like the name Madonna, it had lost its original meaning in that time at least in her life. And she had become a prophetess of the cult of Astarte, a goddess who was part of the broader pagan framework of belief known as Baal worship, and a particular cult that allowed ritual prostitution and human sacrifice under the guise of greater spiritual experience. Now at first, when Jezebel came knocking at the door of King Ahab to trick-or-treat, he had probably simply entertained her hospitably as a visitor from the northern neighborhood of Tyre and Sidon and thought it's good to get along well with the neighbors. But he made the mistake of inviting her in. And then he made her his wife. Probably convincing himself that under his benevolent influence he'd be able to convert her to the worship of Israel's God. He may have told himself later on that he was only making a limited concession when he helped to bankroll for her the construction of a temple to Estarte right there in Israel's northern capital, Samaria. But when she brought in 850 of the prophets of Estarte, And they helped her to systematically slaughter all of the prophets of Israel's God, save Elijah. And the whole culture plunged into moral darkness and chaos and cold. One can only hope that Ahab woke up and realize the extent to which he thought he was getting a treat but had been tricked. Now the Lord of the church was concerned that this was the very thing starting to happen in Thyatira. Some prophetess had been exerting a perverting influence over the Christians there and had been drawing them into practices, uh, spiritual experiences that were distorting their character and decaying their moral conscience. And the Thyatiran Christians like Ahab of old might have thought that maybe their love and their faith and their hope was strong enough that they didn't need to really push away this voice within their midst, but could, could tolerate it, and in tolerating it, help to reform it. But Jesus made it clear that in tolerating the witch, 
they would themselves only be led to the same bed of suffering and ultimate judgment for which she was destined unless they repent, unless they reform of her ways. I hate it when the Bible hits me at home. But you know, it really does in this text. And I believe that the warning of our Lord to Thyatira is the warning that must be heard by the church today. For it is a calling ultimately to recover that one mark without which the love and the faith and the hope of the church also disintegrates, the mark of holiness. We like to, sh to shake our heads in the church today at all the unholy things going on out there in society at the unholy Jezebels leading people astray, the Madonnas and the others. But, you know, we have been slow to face the fact that, that we've lost some of our holiness too and made a home within our circle for the unholy voice as well. Like the church confronting Samhain long ago, we've accommodated ourselves to the world's ways, naively thinking that we would change it while too often it has changed us. And to be a child of a holy God means to recover a sense of our distinctness. It means to listen to a voice that calls us to go where the world never calls us to go to live by certain patterns that are alien to the world, and to be able to distinguish between the voice of the master and the voice of the witch, and to push the witch out of our life. But the witch is in our midst. And she has said, go ahead and take a look at all that violence and all that sexual stuff that you see in the culture today. Take a look at that stuff. It just doesn't hurt that much to just look. And besides, it's in observing that you stay current with what's really happening out there. And we've looked. We in the church have looked and we've looked and we've obsessively looked till the very reality of that unholiness has sullied and scarred and saddened and sickened our own spirits to an extent that maybe we're not even tuned into. But God says, forget Jezebel. Fix your eyes elsewhere. Whatever is true, Whatever is noble, he says, whatever is right, pure, lovely, admirable, if there is anything excellent or praiseworthy, please think about such things. And the God of peace, he says, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And in the world today, we need to be guarded. 
Our kids need to be guarded. The witch whispers, in order to be happy and successful, you and your young ones need to stay busy. You need to to rack up experiences. You need to build up credentials. You need to be on all of these different teams, broaden all of your contacts. And so we've followed. We filled up every day with activity, endless activity. Even the Lord's Day has become frenetic with our activity to this extent that we've become slaves to our schedules. But God says, stop. Draw some new boundaries. Prune away some of those involvements. Recover the time necessary to be a family, to nurture a soul. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. For I am the Lord. And the witch declares to us, be sure to speak your mind in season and out. It's a sign of strength, and you probably know best, so be sure you speak up. And we have often obeyed. We have carped, and we have criticized, and we have supported those who do. And I'm not pointing fingers, except all the ones head back towards me. I've been part of it, too. I've been part of this this tearing down, this attacking, this cynicism about anything authoritative in our world. But God says, the wisdom that comes from above is first of all pure, then peace-loving, then considerate, submissive, full of mercy and Good fruit. So he says in his word, be quick to listen and slow to speak. Be slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving sin. As I am, says the Holy One. On Hallow's evening, we are reminded that for the present time, there are two very different kingdoms at work in the world and too often in the church. There is the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. But one day, says this revelation, There shall be only one. And when that day comes, and in the dawn of that new age, those who have managed to repent of the witch's way, to continually reform and return to the Lord, who have obeyed the Master's voice here and now, the Bible says will be given the authority to rule over the nations and will be given the gift of living eternally by the light of the morning star, Jesus himself. But in the meantime, each of us has to decide day by day and moment by moment through each day whose voice we're going to listen to. whose culture and kingdom we're going to be part of. 
who we're going to serve really behind our masks and whom as a result we'll dispel from our frame of reference. Who will it be for you? Jezebel? Or Jesus? The trickster of Satan or the the one who is the treat of sinners by his grace becoming saints. Please pray with me. Gracious God, holy God, give us such a vision of who you are that we can never forget whose we are and thus reflect in all our ways that holiness that is your nature and the mark of your family. Amen.